of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a Swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Anyway, I understand we've got some people already waiting to talk. And I understand it's going to be Glenn and Bobby and AJ and Richard. So, Chris, if you're ready to push some buttons, let's say good morning to Glenn. Bob, good morning from the Little Blanco River Valley. (laughs) I bet it's a beautiful morning up along the Little Blanco. It's it's a little foggy, but it'll it'll probably clear up. Hey, yeah. I, I got a couple of questions. The first one is about my peas and beans. I yes. have heard somewhere that they you don't really want to fertilize them due to raising the nitrogen levels. Is there any any truth to that? No, sir, I don't think so. Um, here's the deal with peas and beans. They're what we call legumes, which means that they can form little nodules on their roots, which are filled with a bacteria that takes nitrogen out of the air and sort of makes their own fertilizer. And maybe if you lived in a really, really rich soil area, they would be self-supporting, so to speak. But as bad as our South Texas soils tend to be, I'm a big believer in supplementing them. And as you well know, plants uh, need a lot more than just nitrogen. And that's about the only thing that legumes can do for themselves is uh, buying nitrogen for the plants, and you're missing out on all the trace nutrients and everything else. So um, I believe I fertilize my beans and peas just about as much as I do everything else and figure the nitrogen they produce will just, you know, just help them that much more. And uh, it certainly doesn't, uh, you know, it doesn't seem to affect my crop. I grow great crops of beans and peas and uh, pretty much all the legumes so i would if you want to cut back a little bit on your fertilizer you can but no it just to me it just doesn't make sense because uh, uh, fertilizer gives your plants so much more than the minimal amount of nitrogen that they produce for themselves now 200 years ago in this country before we knew much about fertilizers and fertility uh, the people in agriculture were smart enough and yes they did have lots of gray matter back then too but they were smart enough to know that you couldn't plant corn or tobacco or things like that in the same spot year after year they alternated it with planting beans or peas or something because they built the soil back up with what the other crops had taken away but fast forward 200 years to your garden and my garden no i put the fertilizer in and i probably produce you know, three times as much as they did in the old days. So uh, I would very definitely, I'd stay organic, of course, but I most definitely would fertilize. You're not gonna, you're not gonna harm a thing, and you're gonna make things a lot better. Does that make sense? Yes, sir. It does. Um, re- regarding the inoculant, I've, yes. I've inoculated this area of my garden in the last two or three years. Do I do I need to do it again or? No, sir. No, sir. And, of course, you don't really inoculate the garden. You inoculate your seed. Just putting inoculant into the soil doesn't do much. But as long as you're planting your legumes in the same area, the bacteria are still there. Now, if you say, gosh, I'm going to go over to the other side of the garden where I've been growing eggplant, I'm going to grow beans instead, then you would need to inoculate your seed again. 
but as long as you're planting beans back into the same areas that you planted beans before, one time does the trick for the foreseeable future. Okay, all right, that's good to know. One, one more question. I heard a, an old-timey supposedly remedy for peach tree borers. Uh-huh. I've got one tree that I've got an issue with, and I've already sprayed it. Uh, I've alternated three times between the orange oil and the neem oil. Right. Um, I had a friend of my son's tell him that wood ash is a good good way to curtail them, too. Uh, I mean, it may already be done, but I've got some got some ash I can put on the tree if that's going to help. Well, here's the thing about wood ash. It is highly, highly, highly alkaline, and so you have to use it um, in very small quantities or you will raise that pH up to what, where you'll have the most yellow trees in the world because it'll tie up all the iron, the manganese, and all the trace elements they need. I think wood ash is a great supplement, but the way I put out, and it needs to be fireplace ash, of course, not for barbecue grills, but I basically pick a windy day and stand at the upwind end of the garden and just throw it up in the air and let Mother Nature blow it down you know, over the soil, but only a very, very light application, or you'll definitely make things worse rather than better. Uh, I find okay. the orange oil works very well, and that's all I've ever found you needed to do. Okay, well, hopefully I've got it got it taken care of. But they were talking about applying the ash directly to the trunk and, you know, the major, major limbs, uh, not so much on the ground. Uh, so you I'll just, know. I'll just, I, yeah, I'll just stick with the orange oil, and, and uh, hopefully that's going to take care of the problem. Well, if you've got more than one tree and you want to do a little experimenting, that's the only way we learn. Quick, quick question on the oh. orange oil. What kind of concentration should I use it on the? on the tree i mean i've i've been diluting use it, it uh you want to use it fairly strong i probably use a couple of ounces to a gallon of water about four tablespoons okay. okay all right okay very good i've got a little hand sprayer so i can cut back a little on the bottom. oh yeah put about yeah put put maybe a tablespoon to a quart and that should do the job for you that sounds good i certainly appreciate the help you have a good day you do the same and enjoy this beautiful morning, uh, Glenn. I appreciate it. And Chris, let's go ahead and talk to Bobby. Uh, good morning, Bobby. Uh, good morning, Bob. I'm, I'm glad you uh, moved your clock forward one hour. I, uh, <laughs> you know, it's uh, everybody complains, or at least lots of folks complain, but I am so happy to get that hour of daylight in the evening because I already know that it's always going to be dark when I go to work. So, uh I'm I'm always anxiously awaiting this for this day in the spring so I get my evening daylight back and I can get something done in the evenings. Well, I was kind of looking forward to the uh, extra light too. I've got four questions and they're kind of unrelated except uh, they're all organically uh, based. Okay. Uh, the first one is: Do you have an organic solution to keep puppy dogs out of the garden? Um, it's called electric fence. <laughs> it's uh you know their their puppies are one thing big dogs are another there are animal repellents that you can try that will usually work with the mature dog but puppies are going to run just for the joy of running and they're going to flatten whatever gets in their way especially if they are the size of my labs or you know, various other dogs. Um, if you want something that's unobtrusive, now there's something that really works well that is called invisible fence. 
and I don't know if you've heard of it, but what it is is basically a buried cable, and then the puppy wears a collar that uh, just gives him a little warning buzz if he approaches, you know, the area that's been declared off limits. They do this inside, underneath the carpet. They do it outside, and I'll never forget making a delivery to a longtime customer of the nursery and who had a a wonderful black lab named Pepper who would just absolutely maul you in a wonderful way. And I pulled up to uh, their driveway, and here comes Pepper flying down the driveway, puts on the brakes and stops. And I went up and I said, how on earth did you train him so well? And the, his owner just smiled and said, uh, it's, it's invisible fence. And so I, I can tell you that that is one thing that works real well and is very unobtrusive. I can also tell you, for a little less money, you can go to a feed store and get. Uh, it's very, very easy to put up electric fence now. You don't, you don't actually use a solid wire, which can be a pain to try to do. But they actually make a. It's like a, a polypropylene, very lightweight polypropylene rope or cord, and it's got the little tiny wires embedded in it. So you know, if you can pull out a piece of string, uh, you can use an insulated post and put up a, a little bit of electric fence very, very easily doesn't really hurt the dog but it gets their attention and uh i know at one point my business partner had a great dane that liked eating the uh, the trim off of the windows and she would and this is back then they would actually use the wire but she would actually run a wire around the window and pretty soon she found that uh you didn't even have to hook it up you just had to put the wire around the window and the dog associated that with getting that little shock and uh, I know at one point they realized that they had forgotten to turn it on for three weeks, and the dog was still staying away from things. So that it, it's very humane, but it's also very effective, and I guess I guess would call that organic. It's certainly not harmful to uh, anybody. Uh, it'll give you, a, you know, it, it'll give you a little uh, a tingle, shall we say, if you encounter it unexpectedly. But uh, it's probably the best way I know of to keep. Uh, uh, stock or you know pets out of the garden. Sure, sure. We have a a, a new uh, puppy uh, uh, got at the uh, San Antonio Animal Defense League, and very good. Uh, she's a terrier mix, and we're pretty sure the mix is Labrador. And she just <laughs> loves to dig up everything. I was thinking I was just going to have to put off my garden this summer, but uh, we'll, well see. Look into look into a very simple electric bench. You're talking. Oh, probably sixty, seventy dollars for a charger. You're looking at twenty, twenty-five dollars worth of uh, stakes and and you know the the lightweight rope-looking material. So for under a hundred dollars, you can keep her very humanely out of the garden. And uh, it's you know it it doesn't mess up their psyche. I'm I'm not into. Uh, I remember one time we were doing the snake training where they used a very powerful shock collar and. I swear that was very hard on the dogs, but uh, they, it doesn't seem to bother them at all. And but they do, they do learn very quickly. So it, it is a very viable option. But uh, I love somebody showed me a picture the other day of someone out walking a large, fairly large dog, and the caption was, "Until I acquired a lab, I did not realize how much of the world was edible." <laughs> <That's> <laughs> Boy, that's true. <laughs> yes, sir. What's question number two? Uh, I'll combine two and three. Actually, uh, a pruning or uh, cutting back a plant question. Uh, uh, I heard you mention a couple of weeks ago a uh, plant called uh, Plectranthus. Um, yes. Uh, 
Uh, I found I was out at Mo Ranch. I don't know if you're familiar with them. It's, oh yeah, uh, Mo, yeah, yeah yep. right out by Hunt, and right. they have a beautiful greenhouse. And there's uh-huh. a section in it where they will sell some of their plants, and then there's another subsection where you, uh, the plant is really kind of sickly. You just give a donation and, and take it. So, <laughs> okay. I saw this beautiful, what I considered a, a, a really pretty uh, mono lavender. Okay. And uh, it, it, the 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 base was cracked, uh, but the the it looked woody, and I thought, you know, I can probably plant this uh, just using the good organic techniques that I've learned from you. Um, so uh, I bought it, added water, it, it came to life, and then. Uh, I used, again, good organic planting techniques that you've taught on your show for years. Um, I want to know, it, and it, it's very well survived the winter. Uh, in fact, I cheated a little bit and put some insulate over it. Those couple of nights we were down to 29 degrees. Right. Um, so I want to know about pruning. Um, should I lightly prune it? It's strictly up to you. Um, Mona lavender plectransis, and that's... It's probably the most common. I mean, there are other things like Swedish ivy, Plectransis, pretty big genus. But um, it's not going to, in effect, excuse me, not going to be a, it's going to be like a geranium. It's not going to last forever. And periodically, you're going to want to root some cuttings off of it and start some fresh plants because you mm-hmm. can perpetuate it that way. So um, the thing about pruning on it, pruning is only to shape and pruning is always going to retard blooming on it. And Mona lavender plectranthus is, a, I call it a reluctant bloomer. It seems to bloom best when the days are short. So if I were going to prune it, I'd probably prune it during the middle of the summer, which is not a real active uh, blooming period. I definitely would not prune it at this time of year because uh, you're just cutting off all those beautiful flowers that uh, – and, and there's more than one color of Mona lavender out there now. It's just it's an outstanding plant. Uh, so you made a good choice, but keep the pruning to a minimum and really prune only to shape. You're, you're not trying to improve the vigor of it. And uh, like I say, prune this time of year, you're sacrificing a lot of those beautiful flowers. So sure. if it needs to be pruned, prune it in the middle of the summer. I would certainly suggest that you think about rooting some of the cuttings you take off and perlite it just always keep a plant or two going because there's going to be a year when the insulate is not enough protection for it and after they're kind of like begonias and geraniums after three or four years they just don't bounce back you know year after year so it's just mm-hmm. be prepared to start some fresh plants every two to three years okay thanks yes i will and then uh, shrimp plants uh i got a shrimp plant in uh, shades of green uh, last year it did beautifully wonderfully um i'm wondering if i should again this is the first time i've had a shrimp plant should i cut off the old flower or just it's, let them fall off i just let them fall off mother nature makes it sort of a self-cleaning plant and uh it's it is a wonderful perennial it will last you year after year after year after year and uh hummingbirds love it it's just one of my favorite plants it'll grow in anything from almost full sun to fairly good shade so uh you can you can trim it if you need to trim it you want to do that one early spring but most of the time we just let it go and uh, like i say it's sort of self-cleaning so 
that's when I just sit back and relax over. It's it's going to take care of itself. All right, all right, all right. Uh, last question, um, and I, I don't get to hear you every weekend, but several weeks ago, uh, Howard Garrett had mentioned a friend of his had discovered coffee grounds were not a very good uh, source of uh, fertilization, and uh, I'm wondering if there's been any kind of follow-up on that. I know a lot of the grandmothers would be really shocked <laughs> by that. Well, you know, coffee grounds, the coffee is processed so many different ways these days, and I think it would definitely be true that coffee grounds are not really much in the way of fertilizer, but as far as a way to add organic material, and it's been my experience that earthworms absolutely love coffee grounds, and there's not much better soil enhancement than worm castings, so um, I would not consider them a, a fertilizer substitute, but used in moderation, I think they very definitely improve the soil. Now, I don't think you'd have real good luck planting at 100% coffee grounds, but, you know, quarter, half inch over the surface of the soil and just kind of gradually work in as you plant or use as a mulch. I do it in my garden, and it works extremely well. So um, there, and again, there are some of the different coffee companies that uh, Starbucks is not one of them. Starbucks uses something called, uses something called the Swiss water process to decaffeinate their coffee, but some coffee companies decaffeinate coffee using lye and some other things that I would not want to drink, much less put in the garden. So um, if you're using your own coffee grounds, uh, be a little a little conscious of using too much decaf stuff, but um, no, I think coffee grounds are in virtually every case just fine for the garden. Don't overdo it, and don't let it try to replace your fertilizer, but use it as a supplement. I think you'd be very pleased. Well, I've got to agree. I, I add it to my uh, compost pile all the time, yeah. and I have some great compost. Uh, decaf stuff, that's not real coffee, you know. <laughs> well, I'm a, I'm a tea drinker, I'll have to admit. Years ago, I decided the only reason I was drinking coffee was because I like cream and sugar, so switched over to tea, and what I would do now, I drink Thai chai, which is basically tea with cream and sugar, but... Uh, Anyway, no, it sounds like you're doing it right, Bobby, and I think you're doing just fine. Well, Bob, thank you a whole lot. Always a pleasure. I appreciate the call this morning. You have a great Sunday. All right, bye-bye. Bye. Off to gardening, and let's see what AJ's up to this morning. Good morning, AJ. Good morning, Bob. How are you doing? I'm doing moderately well this morning. I Something, I think, crawled into my throat overnight, and it's not quite right, but, you know, uh, it, it too will pass, so... I'm doing fine and looking forward to a beautiful day. What about yourself? Well, we we're up at it this morning, and 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 your 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 voice is it's about the same. But let me be brief this morning, and so we get somebody else on. Okay. I was asked to to a feed store. Gentleman had a bunch of stuff in there. He wants to get rid of. He he had some old uh, Medina Green and Grill fertilizer and some busted bags and whatnot and what have you. Uh-huh. And then he had a bag of vermiculite that was unopened and and a lot of dust on it. What what is that vermiculite used for? Vermiculite is used for various things. It's used as a rooting medium to start some cuttings. It holds a lot of moisture. Some people actually blend it into their potting soils. And um, I'm not a big fan of vermiculite. I like perlite better, 
But vermiculite, if you're growing something that really likes a heavy soil, uh, you can blend it in with uh, your soil, and it'll hold a good deal more water in the soil. It's gotten a bit of a bad rap uh, because apparently some of it is a little uh, contaminated, shall we say, with asbestos from some places apparently. But uh, it's just not something that I use a lot of. I'd I'd scoop up all the growing greenies got and anything else organic. And, oh, I know the African violet people, they like rooting the leaves of those violets in vermiculite. And uh, some of the people that start vegetable seedlings, uh, they'll make a potting soil that's fairly high in vermiculite. But uh, I'm, I'm just much more of a perlite fan than a vermiculite fan. All right. I was uh, What I was planning on using it for, if it was uh, suitable for, is just mixing it about 50-50 with garden soil when I plant my seeds and uh, put it in there so it's not, it won't get comp. I was, uh, I thought maybe it may keep the soil from compacting any. You can give that a try. It certainly should cut down on compaction. Just be careful that it's not holding too much water in the soil. That would be my, my only real concern okay. is, uh, you know, it, but you're down where you've got soil that drains pretty well. So uh, it's not like you're living with the caliche and black clay that so much of us so many of us deal with. So where you are, that should be just fine. All right. Well, that's my situation for today, Bobby. I hope that your day stays free of anything more complex than that, A.J. That's not a bad situation to have to deal with. Okay, Bob. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. Thank you. Goodbye. All right. Next up is Richard, and then we have a pair of Joes on the line. Good morning, Richard. Good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. I had a question for you about uh, growing a couple of tomato plants, Sweet 100, from seed. Okay. And so um, I know with, like, carrots, I would normally, like, in a four-inch pot. Actually, I put the carrots in the ground. But um, and if, on the four-inch pot on the tomatoes, if I put two seeds in a four-inch pot and they both sprout it, should I uh-huh. naturally thin those? No. Um, or can I put that in, like, one tomato cage? No, I do it in one. I use a slightly wider tomato cage. And I I usually put two plants to the cage, and if it is, uh, you know, even if it's four-inch plants, I'll just plant two. If I'm lucky and get a four-inch pot that has two plants in it, I'll just leave it as is. So, no, I think you're always good to stick two seeds into a pot because that way at least one of them is always going to germinate, and if both of them germinate, sure. it's not a bad thing. So it doesn't matter if they're literally half an inch away from each other? No, sir. It doesn't matter if they almost okay. fuse together. They're not going to crowd each other or hurt a thing. Okay. And would that be the same thing for, like, an Arkansas traveler or bigger tomato plant? I feel the same way pretty much about all all the tomatoes. Uh, I don't think it hurts to, uh, um, you know, have. Now, I wouldn't go with more than two plants in a cage because it can get to where it just crowds to the point that um, you'll have a problem. But like I say, I, whether it's Arkansas, well, if you look to my garden right now, I've got two plants Per cage with Lemon Boy, Arkansas Traveler, Celebrity, Sun Gold, Sweet 100, Cherokee Purple. I always plant two per cage, and I think you're just fine on all your tomatoes that way. All righty. Well, I appreciate that info, and I have one question about uh, ants, if, if that's okay. Absolutely. Um, I put some, uh, the, I soaked some ground cornmeal and some water to try to build some uh, resistance to my oak tree in the front because right. I knew I was about to do some pruning and I was hoping I'd be able to spray every uh, wound, but I figured it'd be a good thing either way. So uh, about a week later, I was watering the tree pretty thoroughly with a hose, left it on for a couple hours, and as I was walking around, 
I noticed uh, just a flood of ants um, going up and down the tree. And so uh-huh. when I looked close, it seemed like they had a little white um, substance in them, like in yep. their, like they were eating them and taking them up and down. Is that is that a sign of any harm that's being done? Uh, well, they're the ca- they're carrying their larvae. Those are little undeveloped ants that they're taking away from the flood of Noah that just hit their they just hit their burrow down in the ground. So, um, uh, tell me about the ants. Were they uniformly black in color, or they're sort of half red and half black? I di- I didn't look that closely. They just look like the traditional fire ants that I'd see in my yard. Well, it's probably what they were, but if they have some red and black on them. Uh, they may be carpenter ants. Both of them are a nuisance. Neither one of them are a serious problem. Um, I would, uh, it's not something I would want to be dealing with all the time. Uh, and is is this a pretty good sized tree, this great big tree? That's uh, about nine or ten years. Okay. Uh, you could mix up some orange oil and put around orange oil and water and put around to kill them out. I would probably start with something they call come and get it. Which is a an organic bait, and you sprinkle a little of it out there. Don't disturb the mound. You want them to find it on their own. But uh, I leave the fire and slow up my fields, and I get rid of them around my garden. So uh, um, the the problem, and it's not going to be a real issue to your tree, but a really big fire ant mound. They almost waterproof the soil so that it's, uh, it can be harmful to plants that have a limited root system. In this case, I'd just call it a nuisance. I'd sprinkle a little come and get it around and forget about it. Well, I'm one week ahead of you because I'm an active listener, and I know that's what you would say. So that's what I did. I just wanted to make sure that going up and down the tree wasn't a harm. And not a harm at all. And I appreciate the call, Richard. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right, back to gardening. We are going to talk to two different Joes. I don't know how to tell you which one is first, but when you hear that click on the phone line and uh, uh, the Volume probably drops just slightly. Well, you're the Joe I'm talking to. Good morning. Morning, Bob. Good morning, sir. Let's talk manure this morning. Okay, that sounds like a pretty crappy subject, but I think we can do that. <laughs> I have a buddy that has a few horses, and I was uh-huh. at this place yesterday and picked up a bag of uh, horse droppings. Okay. Um, I have uh, raised flower beds. They're pretty large. They're probably 9 by 20, 10 by uh-huh. 20. And I never had a weed problem in probably 20 years. But I've heard that manures coming from horses um, tend to have more seeds than cattle. Is that and true? do you know why that is? Because they cannot process the seeds? No, it's because material moves through a horse a whole lot faster than it moves through a cow. What goes in the the front end of the horse comes out of the back end much more quickly, and uh, the digestive system just doesn't have time to break those seeds down. So you are totally right in that uh, horse manure is much more likely to have weed seeds in it. But the more serious concern to me is that many people feed their horses hay, which has been sprayed with a very bad herbicide called picloram that goes right through the horse or right through the cow, comes out in the manure, and everywhere you put that manure, it kills everything except the grass. So you need to do one of two things. Uh, Talk to your friend, find out if he grows his own hay or if he buys hay. If he buys hay, I can almost promise you it's been sprayed with picloram, and I would never, ever put it in my garden. If If you want to do your own test, 
what you can do is take a bucket, fill it half full of that manure, then fill it with water, let it stand for about 24 hours, and then take that water and go out and pour it over a broadleaf weed like a dandelion or henbit or something like that. If that weed still looks good 24 hours later, then you probably got lucky and got a batch of manure without any herbicide in it. But if that weed starts looking bad, you will know that there is a herbicide in the manure. And unfortunately, the herbicides that are out there today, the stuff called picloram or P plus D or Grazon, it doesn't break down in nature. And you work that into your garden one time, and you'll have a tough time growing anything for the next 10 years. So I, if I don't know the source of the manure, I stay pretty much away from it, and with horse manure, I just don't use it at all. Okay, okay, that's fair. He did say that he doesn't; he just lets them graze. Um, okay, well, it's probably well, safe. Here, here's what you could do if you wanted to, Joe. You can get some of that manure and basically compost it. Put it in your compost pile and let it age for six months or so. That's going to get any of the weed seeds that are in in it are either going to germinate or be deactivated by the heat of the compost pile. So right. if you think it's good stuff, you know, just compost it a while and then use it. That'll be just fine. Okay, well, um, me and my big ideas. I, I have a turkey fryer, and I have a an old uh, tin, five-gallon can. Okay. That I was thinking about filling up with water, putting that manure in there, and then let it come to a boil. And then just kind of let it come back to room temperature. Do you think that it would destroy the, the good nutrients and the good microbes if I do that? Yes, you would definitely destroy them by boiling. What you would be doing if you just took your your bin and filled it with water and let it soak for 24 hours, you're making what we call a manure tea. And mm-hmm. then uh, you could just pour that tea around. You're going to get more in the way of microbial life than you are nutrients out of uh any kind of horse or cattle manure, so um, you would be pretty much eliminating the weed seeds, but not necessarily all of them, to turn it into a manure tea instead of just using it as manure. But uh, the only thing I'd leave out is the boiling. Let it soak for maybe 24 hours, and then just use that tea like a liquid fertilizer. Okay, perfect. Uh, One last question, onions. Um, Local nursery guy told me a couple years back that once an onion decides it's the end of its life, it's not going to grow any further, no matter when you put it in the ground, even if it's a small, a small little onion. What is the proper, the, the the better time to put onions seedlings on the ground? Well, it um, yeah, uh, it really depends on the type of onions that you're planting. You can plant onions anytime from. Oh, roughly uh, mid-October, maybe even early October, all the way up until early March. You can still plant onions, and, of course, the earlier you plant, the bigger the bulb you will get. But how the onion relax, reacts to day length is going to make a big difference in whether it decides to bloom. You'll know it's decided to stop growing when it starts making the flower spike up on top. And at that point, you might as well harvest it and use it. Once it started making the flower spike, it uh, it not only does not grow anymore, but it doesn't keep as well. So uh, anything, any onions that started to bloom, harvest them and use them, at, at, you know, as soon as you can. But there are short day onions, there are long day onions. There are many different types of onions out there. I usually plant my onions about October, November, and um, I grow a very good crop of onions. Sometimes I'll plant a second crop in February. 
So uh, you do it when it's convenient for you. If you are dealing with a nursery that knows about onions, they can tell you more about whether they're going to be a problem starting to bloom too soon. But unfortunately, not not everybody out there is real savvy about that. So I just plant them, and as much as I like onions, if I have to pull a few of them now, this year, I probably have 125 onion plants in my onion patch, and knock on wood, not a single one of them has decided to go to bloom yet. So it's partly a combination of day length and weather. Uh, you're right at the tail end. If you find some onions, plant them right now. You're not going to get big onions out of them, but you'll get green onions. But start substantially earlier next year. Grow a number of different varieties, and they'll be one of the best crops in your garden. Perfect. Thank you so much, sir. It is my pleasure. I appreciate the call, Joe. You do the same. Thank you. All right. Back to gardening. Straight back to the phone lines. I believe we've got another Joe waiting. Good morning, Joe. Hey, Bob. How you doing? Good morning. I'm good, sir. How about yourself? Fine. I I got uh, the last 10 years, I've had some beautiful Esperanzas along my back fence. Uh, about six of them. They grow six feet high. Yes, sir. And I've had to, tr- I've had to trim a weed out of them. And I don't know, and I, it, the leaves look kind of like Esperanzas, but they're not. It's a weed. Somebody told me what the name of it was, and I, I just been trimming it back. Well, I want to dig it out of the ground, but it's as hard as a brick. The root on it is very hard, and okay. I can't hardly get it with a with a hoe or an axe or anything. It's so hard. Um, I was thinking, can I put orange oil on that to kill the thing? It's it's pretty good size, about an inch and a half at the at the base, at the edge of the ground. Uh, uh, orange oil is no, that's it's not really going to do much against it. Uh, and if you put enough on there to kill the weed, I'm afraid you damage your esperanza. Uh, much as I hate to say it, you're probably better off. Um, can how close to the ground level can you cut it? I, it's about. I got one of them below the ground, but it took an hour just to get it cut below the ground. Yeah. Uh, I got five more to get rid of, and and they're about four inches above the ground or three inches above the ground. And I don't know what kind of weed it is, but it man, it is it is really a hard root, and we had a hard time getting that one out. And I said, I better call Bob and see if he knows how to get rid of those things. I, I how far away from your Esperanza is it? Oh, about. It's right up against it almost, about six inches. And it you grows know, right in with it grows right in with the Esperanza and I have to yeah. keep trimming it out all year. It's there is no easy way to do it. If you can cut it off near ground level and you're just slightly away from the Esperanza, I've known people to do something like take an old shingle or two and put over it. I've known people to take something like a soup can and cut one end out of it, and just after they cut off the trunk, just put that down over the top and fill it with soil, and that really retards it trying to sprout out and grow. But unfortunately, you know, there's just not a lot out there that would distinguish between the weed and your esperanza, and I'm afraid anything too toxic you did to the weed would end up damaging your esperanzas. So... Um, that answer just doesn't have, a, or that question just doesn't have a real easy answer, I'm sorry to say. Oh, boy. Well, it looks like I got some work cut out for me. It's uh, either that or move, and I think the work would be the better choice. <laughs> my second question is, we 
I had a pool removed from my backyard, and I had it filled in with dirt and, and uh, with uh, grass. Uh, and it's got kind of like little dips in it, you know. Okay. And I'm wondering what, what can I do to even it out a little bit? It's just a little bit uneven. Just put some dirt in there or what? I hate to see you use just dirt because you might bring in some more of those awful weeds. I would just oh. use compost if it were me. I'd just get some good, uh, you know, compost. There's always ladybugs back out there now. Uh, Nature's Creation makes a really good bag compost. I'd just put out there and, you know, rake that level. That way you're going to improve the soil that's there. You're going to even it out, and you're not. You're guaranteed to not bring any weed seeds in that way. Well, do I buy it by the truckload or just bag it? It depends on how much you need. If you don't need a huge amount, I just buy it by bags. If you need a large amount, call somebody like Stone and Soil Depot and tell them you want the certified organic new earth compost. But if you don't need uh, a tremendous amount, you can just, uh, you know, again, just buy it by the bag. Okay. Okay, well, I just wanted to check with you on that. Now I'll see what I can do with those weeds. I, I wish I could solve the problem with the weed, but... Uh, if you come up with a good solution, uh, you'll be a wealthy man. Well, I wish I could know the name of it because somebody said, oh, that's a, such, such a weed. I, well, you can do one of two things. You can usually either take some leaves or take a good close picture of it and take to a, uh, to a good nursery. Um, somebody over here at Phoenix, we're at Shades of Green. I suspect the folks at Rainbow Gardens uh, probably would be fairly good at uh, telling you you know what it is and uh it can it certainly can be identified but looking at a leaf or looking at a real good picture would be a big help well okay i'll try to do that when it comes back because it's dead right now <laughs> well we'll keep our fingers crossed that it stays dead for you okay thank you you're sure welcome joe thank you good morning carolyn well good good morning good morning I have probably a lot of questions, but I have two that I need answered today. One okay. is I bought the soil activator. We've had so many rains up here in Fort Worth, and it's kind of beat down my garden and made my soil. Uh, it's hard. I've, I've, I'm growing a lot of weeds, that's for sure. Okay. And uh, so um, I bought the soil activator, and it, it told several ways to apply it. So I put it in a hand, hand uh, sprayer. And when I sprayed it on the yard, I guess with the wind and everything, it dries up immediately. Is there a better way to put it on, or do I, does the ground have to be wet, like when you do nematodes, or how? how just give me a one-on-one -on, -one on that. Well, it's really it doesn't matter how you put it on because the ingredients in in your soil activator are water soluble. So if it dries up when you put it on, then next time it rains, next time you water, it will go back into solution and be carried down into the soil. I usually use a sprayer on the end of the hose just because I can cover a larger area in a smaller amount of time. But the material in there does not burn, does not cause any problems. So you can put it out when it's wet, when it's dry, when it's cold, when it's hot. Basically, you just do it when it's convenient for you. And if it dries out, it doesn't hurt it. There's not soil activator stimulates the life in the soil, but it doesn't contain any life on its own. So if it dries out, it's going to go back into solution uh, when next time it it either rains or next time you apply water to it. So uh, don't let that be a problem to you. Oh, okay. I would have used the hose end, 
uh, I knew it would, you know, I'd, I'd be putting water on at the same time. But the hoses are a little stiff in this cold weather. I understand so. that. Yes, ma'am. Right. Right. So maybe I'll try it today and see, because uh, I'd like to get it in there working. And, and I thought one time you said about once a month apply it or. Uh, that, yeah, that, a, you know, if you, I, I just don't see that it provides much additional benefit to do it more often than that. But uh, every, you know, farmers do it three or four times a year, and a lot of them have gotten almost a problem with their soil getting too soft. But if you can do it once a month, you'll start achieving that softer soil more quickly than if you're just doing it a couple of times a year. Okay. And then the other one is my kefir pear. I've had it in the uh, for several years. Last year I had a bumper crop of pears, but they weren't any good. They had they were they were misformed, malformed, and lumpy. And I finally threw a, threw them away. I said I'm not peeling these things. And then they had little brown spots in them. So uh, I mean, I had a lot of them. I thought maybe someone told me I should have been pulling them so they wouldn't be so crowded on the you know crowded. And uh, well, and I don't know I don't know why they were they were that way last year. They they were you know. Kefir pears aren't perfectly shaped pears, but right. these had lumps and dips in them, and I didn't know what, what went wrong with them. Did you see many insects around them? Did you see a lot of wasps and things around them, or just they, just they didn't uh, form well? They, I, no, I, I didn't particularly see a lot of insects. I, you know... No, I, I guess I didn't. Uh, they just looked normal. I thought, oh, boy, I'm going to have a bumper crop of pears. And well, uh, then yeah, they started getting all lumpy. Mm-hmm. It it normally, you know, a, a tree can produce so many pounds of pears or peaches or whatever else. If you will go through and thin it out, you will reduce the number of fruits you have. But the ones that are left on the tree will typically be you know, substantially larger. I find that, you know, if you get kind of odd-shaped things, sometimes it's weather, sometimes it's uh, some little flying insects, like some of the thrips, some of the different insects that, uh, so to speak, they say that it stings the fruit. That's not really what they're doing. They're taking a little bite out of it, and it produces kind of an abnormal growth. Interestingly, a lot of these things come out of the soil around the base of the tree. I know you use beneficial nematodes periodically. I would put some out uh, even now, but uh, early in the spring. I would spray for a radius of maybe 20 or 30 feet out from the trunk of the tree. Spray the soil all around the base of that tree, and I think you'll probably have a lot fewer things that are up there messing up the fruit. Part of it was probably weather but I think you've got some little very small insects that you're not seeing that are coming out of the soil. I would suggest beneficial nematodes around the tree. I'd like to say out a little ways beyond the drip line and see if you don't get a much better crop this year. Okay. I know I have a lot of thrips this year. They decimated yep. my uh, my lime tree, in the and it was in the garage, and I always put it in with a light. I couldn't right. believe it, you know, oh, yeah. how many thrips I had. I finally resorted to spraying the tree with garlic every day because that's what I figured was on there. I think I talked to you about it um, right. a few weeks and, ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, garlic and, uh, Garlic is one of the good ways to get rid of them. The thrips exist in a larval state in the soil, 
And if you around any places where you've had a thrips issue, try to get your nematodes out in January, February. This way you eliminate them before they ever even get up into the air. And I know mm-hmm. uh, when we had an antique rose emporium location here in San Antonio, they had quite a thrips issue. Robbie one year sprayed all their beds with nematodes and did not get real con- good control. The next year, she sprayed the grassy areas around the beds as well as the beds, and they got over almost 100% control on the thrips. So, oh, need okay. to, yeah, put that on the calendar for next January or so. This year, um, you might it probably wouldn't hurt to go ahead and put some out, but if you're seeing a lot of thrips on your pansies and things, just get in high gear with the garlic because that's the best thing we found to stop them. One other thing that works very well some years and not so well other years. You can go online. They don't have a, a long shelf life, so you're probably not going to find them in the nurseries. But there is something they call a thrips predator. And it's a predatory insect that feeds on the thrips. And uh, my business partner had them just horribly on pansies and petunias last year. She put out some of the thrips predators. I think we got them from Rincon Vitora or one of the big beneficial producers. And they took care of her thrips problems 100%. This year she did the same thing and uh, with not quite the same degree of success. So beneficial nematodes and thrips predators are two natural ways to go after them in addition to using the garlic on the plants. Oh, okay. I always use garlic on the roses because they they will get thrips. I mean, oh, yeah. Yeah, the, yeah, but that's the only problem I've had. And I've never had anything come into my garage and... And do do that to the and then then once they took care of the lime tree, they decided to work on the lemon tree. But I caught them before they decimated the whole thing. And okay. you can the the garlic will work there. But if you're not if they are not in bloom, I find that the spinosad soap, which actually comes many times in a little hand sprayer, the spinosad soap will do a fairly good job of controlling. But you have to use it repeatedly, so it's easier. Yeah, to get I did. Them off. I used that before I started on the garlic. I used it three times, but that didn't seem to work at all. Well, and so then I saw these little. All my flower buds were covered with black, and I'm going, "What is this black all over them?" Oh yeah. Once I killed them, I saw some of them climbed onto the leaves, and then I. That's when I saw they looked like little black strings. I mean, tiny, tiny, tiny things. Yeah. Well. So anyway, be, put try, it on your I'll calendar to get the. Yeah, use the beneficial nematodes in January next year, and you'll okay. probably get them before okay. they ever get started. Okay, thank you very much. It's always a pleasure. Thank you. Goodbye. All right, let's talk to Jim. Good morning, Jim. Hey, how are you? You're doing well, sir. How about you? Oh, well, since I like the smell of mountain laurels, I'm, I'm having an enjoyable morning because the old lady smells like mountain laurel blue. I, it's been a beautiful year for mountain laurels, that's for sure. Yeah. Hey, uh, the the worms that eat the new growth on the mountain laurels, uh, they're they're having a feast on a couple of mine. Is there anything that can help with that? Absolutely. Get some of the liquid, what they call BT, stands for Bacillus thuringiensis. Mix it up according to the directions, and then add a couple of teaspoons of molasses to your spray. It's a stomach poison to the caterpillars. It doesn't hurt people or pets. But uh, the the uh, little caterpillars get on mountain laurels or cabbage or many other things. They take one bite out of a leaf that has the BT on it, stop feeding immediately, and die within a few hours. So BT will control those guys very, very easily. 
the one thing I would tell you, though, is that those caterpillars usually hit a mountain laurel when it's a little bit stressed. The most common stress on mountain laurels is staying too wet or being buried too deeply in the soil. So um, you may want to think about, if you have a sprinkler system, you may want to cut off the head that's closest to your mountain laurels and need to take a careful look at the base of the plants and see uh, if, you know, you want that, that trunk exposed all the way down to see where you see the roots flaring out from the base. If you get that taken care of, you'll probably never see the, the uh, caterpillars again, but now while you have them, that BT will control them, uh, oh gosh, within a few hours. Oh, that's, uh, yeah. I'll try that. Uh, I got one other question. I, I grow a lot of natives in uh, containers, and I've I was wanting to ask you about a, a soil mix. I was sold some stuff. The guy called it uh, molasses compost, and I mixed that with mushroom compost and some vermiculite. And uh, I was, uh, it seems to be working fairly well, but I was wondering if there's anything you might recommend or if I could do anything to that to help the natives well, grow better. Well, in the, in the warm season, you'll probably get away with that okay it sounds to me like a pretty heavy mix and um in our cooler months when the light's less intense you may find that that holds too much water um i would probably add uh, maybe a little bit of lava sand i would substitute uh perlite for vermiculite uh because it it's not it does the same thing with loosening and opening the soil up but it doesn't hold nearly as much water as the vermiculite does but you know if it's working for you use it but my my fear is that in cooler darker conditions things would say wet to the point they would be, they wouldn't do so well interesting okay well that uh i'll uh i'll be looking into that and see if i can't find a a big batch of perlite I think you'll be. Uh, it'll be less expensive than reculite, and I think you'll grow better plants. So give it a try and let me know how it works out. All right. Well, thank you for the info. You're certainly welcome. I appreciate the call this morning, Jim. Thank you. It is a beautiful Sunday morning. I hope you're going to get out and enjoy this gorgeous day and spend some time of it in the garden. And that's what we're talking about. We're going to talk to Lee and Kim and Don um and julie so uh let's start up at the top of the list and that'd be lee good morning lee they haven't said my name yet lee good morning okay how how bright do you want it okay put lee back on hold and let's go on to kim you need to be listening to your phone lee so you'd be ready to talk to us uh uh kim good morning hi good morning how are you doing ah doing well how are you today Oh, I'm good. I was just sitting out here laughing. You were talking to the gentleman earlier about the invisible fence. Oh, uh, yes. Directly across the canal from me, um, my neighbor has it buried all along the canal. And yes. it's something, like a ball or something, he has two labs. Ball or something gets right beyond there, they'll go right up to that line. And then they <laughs> sit there and bark at that ball or that frisbee, and they will not cross that line. It's very effective. And like I said, I've yeah, known people. It really is. It really is. Um, hey, I just have uh, a couple of questions. One main question that I um, just wanted to get your opinion on a product. Because um, I have a, a, real, a nice selection, um, fairly large, unfortunately. I have an addiction, I think, of plumerias. Okay. And, um, there's, and, there's a withdrawal program, but I don't recommend it. You just you just go uh, on with your addiction. So. You'll be just fine. <laughs> I often listen to you talk about your orchid addiction, and I'm thinking, oh, my Lord. Yes. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm getting overrun here. 
But anyway, um, I have some of the newer ones, and, you know, due to their wide branching and their lack of canopy, I really struggle with the sunburn. And so I was kind of investigating that, and I, was, I found um, a product, and it's called, it's made by Ivy Organics, and it's a three-in-one paint guard, tree paint guard. Uh-huh. Um, it's all, it's made like, and the ingredients are like castor, cinnamon, clove, right. cedarwood, garlic, peppermint, and rosemary. And it says it protect, protects against sunburn and insects. And I don't know if you've ever heard of it, used it, your opinion well, on it. It's I don't know that one, but they're you know it, they're used mainly much more on shade trees than on things like plumeria. Plumeria has a much softer oh stem, shall we say? It doesn't have a rough bark on it like trees do. So I would be I don't know I'd be I'd be a little I'd be very cautious. I might try it on one or two plants before I tried it on more than that. Um, normally. Yeah. Plants plants will adapt to the sun. It's just when they go very suddenly from very shady to very sunny. It's about the only time that I have ever seen real sunburn problems on plumeria, or if they've if they've gotten moved. They're kind of like us. If you went out and lay out on the beach all day the first day of spring, you would absolutely roast. But if you build up a tan gradually, you can tolerate more sun. Not that it's a good idea. Oh, but the dermatologist right. is not listening. But um, if if you you know again if you can gradually let them get a, you know a used to the sun i doubt that you really need to do that i also you know if when when this addiction really gets bad sometimes if you create a little space where you put just a very light shade cloth like 30% shade over you still get the good growth you still get the good blooming but it takes away that that last little bit of sun that seems to be responsible for the right. burn. So. on it is only on some of the the newer babies that the thing about it is, and it's I guess it's, I see certain varieties that it that it tends to get on. And what I'm noticing the most is most of them have like the upright, and by the time they get their canopies, they are protecting themselves. But right. some of the growth habits of uh, as when they're still really young before they get a lot of extra branches where the uh-huh. leaves will cover that center. Boy, it, you know, for two summers in a row, and this one's been out for two years, um, and I always just end up having to pull it back under because sure. it just struggles. Well, you could you and can I was just try wondering if something like that would work. You can try the product that you're talking about. I tell you in all honesty, you could probably do the same thing a lot cheaper just by getting a low-grade latex paint. I mean, this is what we used to use on greenhouse roofs and things to create a little bit of shade. And a latex, a water-based paint, doesn't really have anything toxic in it. And you could dilute that down to where it was, uh, you know, I'd probably dilute it four or five to one with water, and I think you would accomplish the same thing, probably at a fraction of the price. But, again, I'd, I'd try it only where you've had a problem, but... If I'm looking to shade something, yeah, no, something, I don't plan on painting all of these. Believe me, I mean, yeah. most of them don't get it. It's just I just didn't. I just was curious about your opinion on it and um, if you had heard of it before. Well, see, the the reason people came up with things like that is that some nurseries uh, that are huge production facilities, quite honestly, you know, put their plants too close together. And then those trees get moved out in the open where the sun gets them, and you actually get 
what can be just a devastating sunburn on the bark, even of an oak tree, if it's moved suddenly from mm-hmm. a shady spot to a sunny spot. And most of these um, paint-on, spray-on type of things were really developed more for a woody trunk than they were for uh, something like your plumerias, which have, like I say, a much softer trunk. So, um, okay, all right. Well, be, be interesting. Um, I want to get to one more question. Yeah, go right ahead. One more question before I um, end up having to hang up. Um, I still am getting tomatoes from my tomato plants from the fall, and the plants don't look bad. Would it right. be wise to still plant some new ones, or can I just carry those through the spring? It's mostly would, the smaller. It's the Juliet's and the Sweet 100. Right. I would plant some new ones. Uh, the thing is that new tomatoes get established much better now while the weather is really nice. And those plants are probably going to play out on you, your old ones, when we get to the really hot weather. And by that time, it's really hard to get, well, it's hard to find new ones, let alone get them established. So I sure wouldn't pull up the old ones. But if you have room to plant some new ones, I think it would be a real good idea to have just good continued production all summer long. All righty. Well, thank you very much for um, all the advice and information. Always a pleasure. Let me know what you, how you uh, come out on this, Mary's Kim. I'll look forward to hearing from you. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. You're welcome. Goodbye. All right, Don, let's try Lee one more time. Lee, you ready to talk to us? Good morning. Yes, I am. Yes, How I am. can I help you today? Well, I'm new to this country, and I've got questions on oak leaves and mulch. Yes, sir. What do you do with oak leaves? My neighbors just moved in here. and my na- Some neighbors tell me that I'm supposed to mulch, cut them up with my lawnmower. Some of them tell me I'm supposed to rake them up, and some of them tell me I'm just leave them. Well, if you want to follow Mother Nature, you would just leave them. The idea of cutting them up, they will break down, they will decompose more quickly if they're chopped up because, of course, the more surface area you have uh, for the microbes to work on, the faster they will break down. Uh, And Mother Nature has just been dumping them on the ground for many, 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 you know, thousands of years, and that's how soil is slowly built. But uh, you can pretty much do anything you want to. You can just leave them. They're only a problem if they get so thick that they screen the light out to your grass. And some years, some years they get awfully thick. I I think that this is the year they get awfully thick. Well, I would would tell you, (laughs) excuse me, I do not recommend that you rake them up and get rid of them because they are very valuable as mulch. I would tend to run your mower through them several times. If they're areas that they're just too thick, you can pick them up and put that oh, underneath uh, just as a mulch over the surface of the ground, around your shrubs and places where you don't have a lot of other things growing. But if you'll do two things, if you will run them over with your mower three or four times to chop them up and then get some molasses, it can be agricultural molasses or just good old liquid molasses of any sort, Spray it, dilute it down to about two tablespoons per gallon with molasses. Spray on those leaves, and uh, it will make them decompose much, much more quickly. That was one tablespoon to the gallon? Yes, sir. Okay. Uh, my next question is on mulch. Yes, sir. If you put if you put mulch down and it gets, well, I don't know, I suppose the people that lived here before me had at least two or three inches inches of mulch now when it rains it doesn't even get wet to the bottom of the mulch yeah that can be a 
problem. Um, I don't normally, if I'm putting mulch down that thick, I want to use just a really loose, very, very open mulch. And you're, you're, you're describing the situation very accurately. Uh, sometimes it's just so compacted and we don't get a whole lot of rain and the rain that we have doesn't even penetrate it. I'd probably get out there with a rake or something and I would just loosen it up. I just, uh, and when you, when you get more mulch, if you get what is called living mulch, where there's a little bit of compost mixed in with it, this will keep it breaking down and it will help the water go through a whole lot better. But uh, uh, that's a problem with almost anything you use as a mulch. If it gets really dry, then it gets to the point where it just uh, it just repels the water rather than absorbing it. So sometimes physically loosening up a little bit, and when you get more mulch, if it doesn't already have some compost in with it, mix a little bit of compost in because that holds it open to the point that the water will soak through much better. Yeah, well, it's mainly in the in the flower beds and stuff. I suppose I can go in there with a little with a little hand diggers and kind of stir it up. Yes, sir. That's what I would do. Or you can use what we call a hard rake, a grass rake, the ones that have the tines on it. You can just kind of reach under it. You go a lot faster and don't have to bend over quite as much if you're using something like a grass rake. But uh, just just anything. It's just uh, what my grandmother used to call elbow grease. you got to put a little elbow grease into it to get it loosened up. Okay, well, I want to thank you, and I really enjoyed listening to you. Well, I appreciate that. We do this... Uh, Saturday mornings, 5.30 till 9, and Sunday had the pleasure of talking plants from 8 till 11, so please feel free to call anytime we can be of help to you, and uh, welcome to the Great South. <laughs> Thank well, you. I might, call ag- I might call again, but it won't be at 5.30. <laughs> I understand. Lucky you, Lee. Hey, I appreciate the call, and I do. Thank you. All right, quickly back to the gardening. It's to be Don, Julie, Anna, and Debbie. Good morning, Don. Good morning, Bob. This is Don down in Divine. Good morning, sir. I got a good question for you. What's the best way to trim palm trees? Pole saw, sawzall, or backhoe? And you're just cutting the old fronds off of them? Yeah, they haven't been trimmed in about three years. Well, you know, they don't have to be trimmed at all, and... With a palm tree, all you can do, of course, is take the old fronds off. You cannot cut a palm tree back the way you could a woody tree and have it come out. The only part of a palm tree that's alive is right up there in the top. So you're going to be limited to, uh, you know, as to just literally not doing anything except taking the old, old fronds off. I think a pole saw, for me, is the easiest way to do it. But then again, I don't have big palm trees in my yard, so can't say I have a lot of experience. I will tell you that they are very, very fibrous, and uh, uh, I would consider it a little bit dangerous to use a chainsaw. I've had to trim a palm or two, and if you're going to use a chainsaw, it needs to be very, very sharp. But if you've got a good pole saw, that's that's what I think is probably easiest because you're trying to cut up you know, within an inch or two of the trunk. One thing I will tell you in the summertime is watch out for wasps because I tell you those paper wasps dearly love to build their nests down in the, those old dry leaves. So go ahead if you need to get them trimmed up. Go ahead and do it before it uh, gets too late into the spring. Yeah, because my father years ago used to raise lovebirds and use the palm trees for the bedding for the birds. So right, we have about eleven trees. 
<laughs> You've got some work ahead of you. Just keep in mind yeah. that you're only doing it for cosmetic purposes. It doesn't make the trees live any better or grow any better or anything, but they sure look nicer if you do if you do trim them up. And if you do it a little more regularly, then you don't have such a massive job heading for you at one time. But uh, uh, just don't you don't have to do all eleven trees at one time. Do do one a day, and in two weeks you'll be all through. Yeah. Next question is uh, I had to dig up my lilies because I've got some that make the big white flowers on the top. Right. And I started separating because, you know, I've had them for about 15 years and I took, I moved them from a house I tore down that was about 80 years old. So there's right. some old, these things like the size of a paint bucket. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And you've got lots and lots and lots and lots of them. Uh, those are a form of crinum, the one you have probably called hymenocallus, but uh, you've got a lot of bulbs, yes, sir. How far do I plant these things apart, a foot or 18 inches apart? You know, I'd put them at least 18 inches apart and figure that they're going to all grow solid within two or three years. If you're, uh, Depending on the variety, you might even plant them 24 inches apart because they're going to crowd themselves again pretty quickly. I, if it were me, I probably, I'd probably put them 24 inches apart. Yeah, because I, I dug up about 30 of them, and and by the time I got through and separated them out, I have like 80 of them. <laughs> so, so I have to, I have to find out where I'm gonna put them at and give a bunch of them away. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, or put them in pots and grow them a little bit and give them away as Christmas presents. Or set up yeah, Don's roadside lily farm. Oh, yeah, it certainly ain't going to be squashed this year. <laughs> yes, sir. All right, I was just wondering what what's the best way to cut them trees down because I was ready to take them down with a backhoe. Well, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go to that extreme, but uh, I'd use a pole saw. And there are, you know, there are lots of different pole saws out there. I spent the money couple of years ago and bought one of those steel pole saws s-t-i-h-l and let me tell you it was it cost me over a hundred dollars but that is the best pole saw i have ever had in my life so uh, uh if you don't have a good pole saw get it and get one and it'll sure make the job go a lot easier well i've had a pole saw for about 15 years already <laughs> then you you but know all about it well get out yeah, and get I'll after see. it and call me uh when you got another good question for me Alrighty, sir. Have a great day. You too, Don. Thank you so much. Goodbye. All right, Chris, let's talk to Julie next. Good morning, Julie. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. I am calling uh, with a question about some dirt. Um, we have an area of our property <clears throat> that is eroded somewhat and settled. And so for a couple years now, we've been thinking we, we needed to put a truckload of um, soil up there it's got some real weedy type of grass, who knows what it is, that's struggling to grow and dies off and barely comes back. And so um, we were thinking some, we're getting, we thought it would be best to get maybe some really good sandy loam and mix it with some relatively light garden soil Um to spread up there so that and then maybe put two inches down and and uh kind of try to let what's growing underneath there come through a bit and and you know kind of um make it more stable and then a, a month or so come back 
with a second load, um, and I'm thinking probably six yards of each or 12 yards of each. I'm, I, that's kind of what I'm told you're, would need 12. You're going to find it's a lot of work to try to blend things up. I mean, if you have a concrete slab where you can put it out there and mix it with a front-end loader or something like that, but you're, I would, I would look as far as you can to find a decent landscape soil, rather than trying to do too much mixing yourself. Because that's, I think that's just an awful lot of work. I don't think you realize. Well, well they'll mix do. it for me at the place we buy oh, it. Oh, they'll play it. Okay. Um, and is this area just grassy area? Is that what you want it ultimately to be? Is uh, is just a lawn-like area? Uh huh. Okay. Yeah. I and what kind of what kind of basic grass do you plan to have growing there afterwards? Bermuda or St. Augustine or? Um, oh, not St. Augustine because it's right. Most of it's all out in the sun. But uh-huh. my husband had called Turner Seed and they and described what we had here and, and they they said well what's going to be best is a mixture of a little bit of annual that'll take real fast with bermuda okay and, and so i don't know what you think about that but well you you're wasting your time to plant your bermuda until the weather is really hot um i mean i usually set mother's day as the earliest that i think about putting out bermuda seed because it's just not going to sprout and grow until uh-huh. we're, you know, into just almost uncomfortably hot weather. I, if you're going to be planting more seed, I don't know that I would do it in two stages. And if you already have some Bermuda grass there, I've had Bermuda grass come up through four to six inches of soil. I think I'd probably go ahead and put your soil out at one time, try to, you know, get your seed planted immediately so that we don't get real heavy rain that causes real bad erosion problems. But I think you're just, you know, doubling your work to no purpose to try to do it in two separate steps. I would do it all at once. Okay. Well, so you don't think it's just going to be a big old mud hole for um, how fast do you think that? I know you can't really tell exactly depending on how much rain we get and everything, but um, I was thinking it might take quite a long time for that. I think six, eight weeks you should be in fairly good shape. Uh, if you wait till it's warm enough. Now, how big an area are we talking about, Julie? It, it's a fairly large area. It's um, probably 70, 70 by 30 yards, 70 okay. yards by 30 yards. Yeah. Okay. I, if it was a small area, I was going to tell you, you can actually buy that kind of erosion fabric that has the seed already embedded in it that you see used along the highways. But that kind of, that big an area, no, it's uh, that would not you. Your best bet is just going to bring you to get your soil in and plant. Is this on a flat area or is it on a slope at all? It's it's uh, it's this property is tiered. It's weird. Um, it's got three tiers that are uh, gradual elevate at gradual elevation. So there, it's like a flat tier at the top, which is higher than the second tier, you know, okay. which is a little bit smaller. And then there's a final third tier that's a little bit smaller than that. Yeah. We'd probably Which actually call that terraced. But terrace, is the, terrace, yeah. yeah. Is, is, uh, are there areas where there's going to be a problem with a lot of runoff and erosion from one there's, to the third, second to the third? Yeah, it, the, the, that, that highest third section that is um, what we're talking about here 
is the first to catch the water from this uh, Caliche Road that runs sure. out in front. Well, here's here's what I would do if I were in your position. Um, I would do everything that we talked about. I'd talk about getting your soil in. i get your seed down. And in addition, I would go out and probably get uh, at least a few squares of Bermuda sod. Uh, okay. And then you can either put them out, but just right there, put a put right along the edge there, actually go ahead and put some grass down. You might be able, let's say your pieces of sod you buy are a foot wide and three feet long. Uh, if you can take a machete and split them down the middle so that you get twice as much, but if you would take a four to six inch wide strip of grass and just, you know, lay it along that top edge, you know, walk it in, water it regularly, that's going to give you a little bit of uh, kind of insurance that you're not going to have a big rain that's going to cause a lot of problems before the grass gets started. That's going to give you a little bit of a barrier there so that short of a flood, uh, it will hold everything in place, keep it from running down to the second terrace while your, your seed uh, sprouts and begins to grow. So, if and that's why I asked you if it was on a slope. If any place is going to erode, I like to do that kind of terrace effect with just going along, not necessarily solid sodding it, but putting a strip and then some open the strip again, some open, just to slow down any water and stop any erosion that might try to occur. Oh, okay, and and that's a great idea. And and then uh, when we do finally do the seed, well, what. Obviously, from what you're saying, we don't want to use this mixed seed because it's got the Bermuda in it, and it's going to be too cold until, you know. Um, you know, even even in the warmer weather, some of that annual seed's going to sprout and grow. I, uh, As long as you're not charging a whole lot more for it, yeah, I think sometimes it's good to get a blend. But mm-hmm. um, I think you probably do just as well if you can find just good straight Bermuda seed. Do you have to cover that, or is it just you no. just sow it on top? No, you have to water it regularly to keep the seeds moist so that it will sprout and grow, but it does not have to be buried. It is simply scattered on the surface. Uh, okay, great. Well, uh, that's very helpful. Um, oh, and do you think we should get the the, the sandy loam? Would, would it grow just in sandy loam? Or that's what I thought we thought it would be best with a mixture of the garden so it would grow better. Do you think it that? would be it would be better with a little garden soil or just a little bit of compost added to it. But uh, quite frankly, Bermuda grows extremely well in sandy loam. So if there's any big difference in price, I just do the sandy loam. Just the sandy loam. Okay. Yeah. Very well. Well. Thanks so very much, Bob. I really do appreciate that. You are certainly welcome. I appreciate the call this morning. All right, right straight back to the phone lines. Anna is up next. Good morning, Anna. Good morning. I Good have morning. one question. Uh, what happened? Oh, how do the peach trees bloom? Is it by the variety or what? Because I know in February I saw some peach trees in full bloom, and mine look like they might be coming out. They might not. I don't know. Okay, that's a that's a really good question, and the answer is that depending on the peach variety, it has to get a certain amount of cold. It has to get a certain number of hours. If that peach could talk, it could tell you exactly how many hours of weather we'd have below forty-five degrees. And a peach tree, this is what we call its chilling requirement, 
and it will not bloom until it has had the appropriate number of hours of chill. So some varieties, uh, that may be 350 hours. Some varieties of peaches, it may be 500. If you get up to Fredericksburg, sometimes it's 1,000 hours. So generally speaking, all of the peach trees of a given variety will pretty much bloom at one time. But it may be that uh, uh, some of the peaches simply take more cold. Some peaches are always going to bloom earlier in the spring. And unfortunately, sometimes they freeze back and don't get any peaches if they're too low chilling. But uh, that's what it is. That's the reason some bloom earlier than others. Oh, because I was so appalled when I drove by and, and I saw this tree in full bloom. And then we had all these cold days and so forth. And I thought to myself, I'm lucky. At least I didn't get my, my little peach tree didn't, uh, you know, the, it didn't freeze. And, well, and that's... Saying, when is yeah. it going to come up? When is it going to wake up? It's green. Well, There's no doubt about it. I, I checked the, the little twigs and it's green, very green. But it's not popping out yet. Well, as soon as it gets the appropriate number of hours, as soon as it counts up high enough to as far as chilling hours, that's when it will bloom. That's when it will come out. Now, unfortunately, some of the box stores and places sell peaches that, you know, were meant for further north, and we just never get enough, uh, you know, enough chilling for them to do well most years. So I hope yours is one of the varieties that does well here because we're still going to have you know a few more a few more days with time below 45 degrees but uh, um, it will come out when it's ready and not before then just be sure you're keeping it watered and uh, when it's appropriate it will you know it will come out and flower and hopefully make some fruit for you well last year i got a beautiful array of uh, peaches i mean everybody wanted some of my peaches yeah. And uh, so I know that it's a good tree, right. but uh, ooh, and the year before I only had two, and last year I had about a half a bushel. So well, and, I, and last year was a little bit colder winter. We had a little bit more cold weather than we've had this winter, which is probably why it's a little bit late. But uh, I, you know, there are a lot of trees haven't come out yet. Hopefully yours will be coming out in the next couple of weeks. Okay, meanwhile, what can I... Um, how can I fertilize it? I get some of those stakes over at the Rainbow no, don't, Gardens. Don't, don't get the, the stakes. stakes for the fruit no, trees. Just, just get the stakes. Just get the loose fertilizer. Much uh-huh. better than stakes. Just loose fertilizer like you put on your grass. You don't have to buy a special kind of fertilizer. Just uh, any good organic fertilizer and just put two or three pounds of it. Just sprinkle it around underneath, uh, underneath the trees. and That will actually be much better for the trees and the stakes are because the stakes just concentrate it too much because we'll just go right ahead and say good morning debbie good morning bob thank you for taking my call thank you for calling i have have what i believe is a mature blackjack oak question okay Um, they seem i think they're like 40 or 50 years old but the trunk has, you know, I think a much smaller diameter, and it has a lot of other branches that are low branches and little sucking branches. And just wondered, is the reason why it's not growing and thriving is that there's so many low-hanging branches that it's not getting the height that they would normally get? No, that really, in fact, when a tree is young, it's best if it has branches down very low because you can think of every leaf 
is being a little sugar factory that's pumping nutrient back into the tree. So a tree tends to develop okay. a better and stronger trunk. I would look carefully at the base of the tree and be sure mm-hmm. that you can see what we call the root flare. It properly should be called the trunk flare, I guess. Okay. But it, All it right. Should, I didn't look at that. <laughs> it should never look like a fence post coming up out of the ground. It should be gradually right. spreading as it gets toward ground level. And if it's buried too deeply, especially uh, a blackjack oak, is uh, they're a good tree, but they're a little sensitive, and um, they will suffer if they are buried too deeply. So the first thing I would look at is just to be sure that the root flare is exposed. Beyond okay. that, little good nutrition, perhaps a little bit of supplemental water if it turns out to be a real dry summer. But... Um, mm-hmm. What I do on young trees is every winter well, I'll go through mature. it. This one's Okay. This but, one's actually, these are like 40 years old, and that's why I was concerned that they're like 40 years old, but it doesn't seem like they're really thriving. And so I thought maybe because of those low-hanging branches that it was trying to, you know, put nutrients in too yeah. many different places. No, that's, that's not the case with the tree. If you want to do some trimming okay. on those low-hanging branches, you can. And with the blackjack oak, you do not have to paint the wounds. That's only on live oaks and Spanish oaks. But okay. um, you can you can make it conform a little bit, you know, more to your liking by trimming it. But it's not going to make it grow any faster or any taller. Exposing the root flare okay. is probably going to do more to increase its vigor and growth than anything else. I will double check that. Right now, the limbs are kind of growing out into the street and so you know they they have to be at least trimmed back and i didn't know whether it would be better just to cut them those that low branch off rather than just trimming it from hanging over the tree i mean that's just kind of like hanging over the road that's kind of like deciding whether you want to cut your hair short or cut your hair long you need to get it out of the road where something's going to hit it and break it (laughs) But whether you take okay, the limb great. all the way, yeah, okay, whether you, you take so it all much. the way off or not, that, that's that's up to you. Okay, all right, super, thank you. Well, you're sure welcome. Let me tell you one more thing. If you do choose okay. to take it all the way off, where that limb joins the trunk, you will see kind mm-hmm. of a little change in the look of the bark and the look of the tissue. Um, you don't okay. ever want to cut just real flush up against the trunk. You want to leave that first little bit of bark. It's called the branch collar. In the case okay. of a blackjack oak, it's probably going to be maybe three-quarters of an inch long. But you want to come out just beyond that point to make your cut. You don't want to cut it back up flush against the trunk. If you cut it at the right spot, it will begin to callus over. It will grow over in a couple of years. You'll never even be able to see where there was a limb. So okay. make the, whoever's one, doing the trimming. thing I just thought of, too. What, there okay. was actually a hole, a little hole in the tree, and there's ants in there. If you want to spray a little bit of spinosad, okay. you can do that. Um, okay. The the trunk of a tree, all the center core of the tree is a tissue which is called xylem. It's spelled X-Y-L-E-M. And basically, that's all dead tissue. It starts, it serves a purpose. It holds water. It moves water back and forth up to the top of the tree. But, you know, you're always, it's always going to be susceptible to have some ants or other things get okay. in there. It doesn't really weaken the tree. Even if a tree is totally hollow, uh, the arborists tell us it's probably 80% as strong as it would be if it had an absolutely solid trunk. So 
I wouldn't worry about the ants, but if you want to okay. get a little bit of a, a product called Spinosad, S-P-I-N-O-S-A-D, it's a safe mm-hmm. natural insecticide that's a real good ant killer you can put on there. Awesome. Thank you so much, Bob. Love your show. Always I sure do. appreciate it, Debbie. Thank you. All right, thanks. Goodbye. Bye. Ah, bye. All right, next up is Mary. Good morning, Mary. Good morning. Yes, Good morning. I'm calling my... My daughter wants to plant a bougainvillea on the south side of her home in full sun. Okay. And I was calling for the names of a couple of bougainvilleas that bloom for the longest period of time in San Antonio. Okay. My favorite would probably be uh, one called Juanita, like the lady's name, Juanita Hatton. H A T T E N. H A T T E N. Okay. Yes. Thank you. And it's a beautiful, rich red uh, magenta color. Uh, there is one called Vicky. It's kind of two-tone, V-I-C-K-I-E. It's kind of a two-tone uh, with a bright pink and white flower. Okay. If she likes orange, there's a variety called Sundown, S-U-N-D-O-W-N. Sundown. But my, my okay. favorite of all is going to have to be the Juanita Hatton. It's the most free-blooming, long-blooming Bogavia that I've ever seen. That's what I want to know. I knew I had heard you talk about it before, but I forgot the name. Yeah, so well, now you know. And find it. <laughs> Very good. Thank you. Bye bye. You're, you're sure welcome, Mary. Thank you. Let's see here. Uh, yeah, let's take one more call before we uh, take a break. Let's talk to Thomas. Good morning, Thomas. Good morning, Bob. Good morning, sir. Uh, what variety of cucumbers do you like? Oh, boy, there are so many good cucumbers. Um, I like a, there. if you want a medium-sized cucumber, there's one which is called Persian, P-E-R-S-I-A-N, Persian Little Fingers. That okay. is a very good medium-sized cucumber. If you want a big, you know, cucumber like for pickling, oh, gosh, there's one called Market More. There's one called Straight Eight. Uh, there's one that's actually called National Pickling. There are bunches of big cucumbers, but if you want a medium-sized cucumber, I have to say probably Persian Little Fingers is about my favorite. Okay. I've heard you talk about that before. I just couldn't remember. Uh, another one, what about uh, cantaloupe? Can you plant cantaloupe yet? or hey, Is it going to freeze again? <laughs> <laughs> I tell you, I'm probably going to plant cantaloupe next week. I'm going to take a chance. Seed is cheap, and uh, I, you know, I like getting it started. Every now and then, you get caught, but uh, figure it's going to take at least a week for the seed to sprout and come up. And for the next two or three weeks after that, it's going to be small enough that you could cover it if you had to. So uh, I, I'm probably going to go ahead and plant some cantaloupe. Cantaloupe, but if you want to, if you want a guaranteed thing, you probably better wait another two or three weeks because. We've had a freeze as late as uh, early April, but uh, I, we're we're getting pretty close to safe planting time. Well, I was going to start them in uh, some little pots, you know, little four-inch pots. Oh, we'll get it done then. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, you're two weeks late on that. <laughs> so yeah, go ahead and get it. If you're going to start them in pots, do it immediately. Bob, have you ever heard of a Doctor Eric uh, Berg? Comes out on the internet. On uh, I pick him up on YouTube. I don't. That's the no. I don't know that name. Well, it's new to me too. But I, I started li- listening to the guy, and he got a real good segment about uh, you know your immune system. Uh huh. And he he believes in a lot of things we do, like garlic and 
apple cider vinegar and all that yes, kind sir. of thing. You know, he's not. He doesn't seem like he's a chemical guy, but uh, well. he's really good. He had. He puts this. Uh, uh, coronavirus in perspective quite a bit. Very good. And, well, uh, I don't. I think it's, I, yeah, this time of year, I don't spend a lot of time in, in front of a computer, but I'll make a note of Dr. Eric Berg. I'll I'll try Eric to look him Berg, up. And, I, think uh, I think you'll like him. I appreciate you sharing the information, Thomas, as always. Okay. Well, thank you. You're welcome. Get out and have a good Sunday, and uh, we'll talk again. All right, back to gardening, and we're going to talk to Linda and James and Scott and Juan, and we start with Linda. Good morning, Linda. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Um, I want to tell you what I what I want to do, and you tell me where I'm wrong. Okay? okay. I've got an avocado tree. It's about two feet tall now. I want to put it in the in the ground. It's okay. in a black barrel right now. Um, I've got some black cloth material that I want to put around it about four feet diameter and then cover it with maybe lava rocks or some some kind of rocks and um also i want to get for next winter i want to get some kind of a that i guess a, a kind of like a tent okay. thermal tent okay and is this an avocado you grew from seed or is from this seed the- from seed okay yeah uh, several things to recognize here. First of all, when you grow an avocado from a seed, it many times has to be as much as seven years old before it blooms and produces fruit for the first time. So uh, it's going to be a while before that plant's going to be big enough to produce fruit. And when it gets big enough to produce fruit, it may be big enough that it's hard to cover. So um, you just need to be just need to be aware that. Uh, if you had gotten a grafted tree, uh, they can produce fruit the first or second year. So if you're really anxious for avocados, uh, you may want to think about coming to Fanix or going to a good nursery that has avocados because you're still in for a pretty long wait. Your tree's a couple of feet tall now, and but it's just getting started. As I'm far not as, really concerned about the avocados. Okay. Well, as I far as the, something that's growing. Okay, as far as the rock goes, the rock is fine, but do not put anything underneath the rock. Those cloth products that they put down, they just destroy the soil underneath them. I use that when I want to kill weeds and just totally kill everything in the area, and then I pull it up and go back to try to improve the soil. And okay. you, your avocado is going to be trying to grow roots under that soil, so uh-huh. uh, they call it, oh, they call it weed block, they call it, you know, by a lot of different names, but it it, it's always a bad idea, uh, Just and, and it doesn't stop the weeds. You put your rock down, and then the dust blows in, and the seeds blow in, and all of a sudden you've got weeds growing on top of the cloth. So um, it's fine to put the rocks down. The rocks are a fine idea, and um, but uh, I certainly would not put any cloth underneath them. Now, as your tree gets bigger, since it is going to be cold-sensitive, um, what you may want to do, you may want to start as a fairly small tree. You may want to prune it back occasionally to make it be a shorter, fuller tree as opposed to getting real tall. Because, like uh-huh. I say, if it's it's going to be hard to protect if it gets 10, 12, 14 feet tall. Yeah, and right. your your tents, your, your frost protection, that's going to be good for about, 
oh, maybe as much as 8 to 10 degrees protection. But I will tell you that we do occasionally get much colder than that, not very often. But you need to have in the back of your mind that the day may come when I have to actually put a little, almost a little greenhouse over this if we're going to have a really cold winter. So um, doesn't mean don't do it that way. It just means go into it with your eyes wide open so you know what you're getting into. That uh, insulate fabric or whichever one of the row covers, they're absolutely great. But they're going to give you 5 to 8 degrees protection. Beyond that, you could... Uh, Oh, there are a lot of different things people do. Uh, you can actually put a little heater underneath there. Some people will find the old-fashioned Christmas lights where with the big bulbs that actually got hot to the touch. They'll oh, wrap yeah. some of those around the tree to create a little bit of extra heat. So uh, okay. I'm just telling you that to grow avocados here, if they're not the cold-hardy ones, you're, you're going to be spending a little bit of time and doing a little bit of work with it. But you can certainly do it. I just want you to know exactly what you're getting into. Yeah, well, I don't have a green thumb, and I've got this tree growing, and I just want to, I don't care if it produces avocados or not, I just, it's growing. <laughs> There's a certain sense of accomplishment to doing yes. that, so I hope that gives you a good starting point. You call anytime I can help. All right, thanks, Bob. You're welcome, Linda. Thank you. Goodbye. All right, uh, let's next talk to uh, James. Good morning, James. Morning, Bob. How are you doing? Well, I'm doing well, sir. Good to hear your voice. How are you doing today? Well, just fine. We got the better out, hooked it up to the tractor, and run about 300 foot of bed yesterday and uh, buried uh, drip tape. Got a little fertilizer in the furrow and going to get everything going for cantaloupes here when it when it warms up oh man you know there's just nothing better than a good fresh juicy cantaloupe it's a little work to produce them but uh i think it's worth the effort it sounds like you're going to be producing plenty of them well it's on another property over in uh, the new berlin area with the sandy loam but the best thing is <clears throat> we've got a little uh one of the little girls is uh, real interested in uh, growing so when it comes time to put the straw mulch up underneath the little uh, cantaloupes, we got a we got a little helper. That's what <laughs> the best part. That that that's a very good part. What variety do you plant? What's your favorite cantaloupe for this area? Oh well, gosh, we're gonna roll the dice and try uh, Hearts of Gold. Uh, uh, I've never grown it commercially, but I'm, uh, just a few plants around. Oh, it's but it's sure a good, a good, sweet, tasty variety. I've grown that one, but I hope it does as well commercially as it has just sort of on a hobby scale. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's nothing to throw rocks at. It's, it's pretty flavorful yeah. and uh, about the right size for market, uh, about three or four pounder. Well, and, of course, you've got the great advantage. You're not trying to put it on a truck and ship it halfway across the country. You're going to take it out to the side of the road and sell it. So you can you can produce a better cantaloupe and a little bit more, uh, a little bit riper cantaloupe. So uh, I, I, think you'll, I think you'll have plenty of people waiting to take those off your hands. Well, Bob, when it comes to cantaloupes, uh, my old gray-headed uh, mom uh, taught me everything I needed to know about them. When you pick them full slip, they can't get any sweeter or juicier. Right. Right. And most people, when you you tell them that, they look at you like a calf at a new gate. What's what's full slip? When the 
when the melon just slips right off the vine, it that's it, that's all. It's ready to go. Yeah, when that, that little it, stem on the top of it, when it just comes yeah, away it, with very little pressure, that's <laughs> that that's full slip and that's and then you just chill it down and slice it open and, and get serious about it. It's <laughs> but not very many things taste better than a good cantaloupe and sometimes a scoop of vanilla ice cream in the middle of it adds to it even more. Well, I hope we uh, we have some fun and, and are successful. But the reason I called was I got some three or four inch uh, hackberries growing on the fence line, and I can't get down low to cut them and treat them with the diesel. Right. I, I can't cut them at three or four feet above the fence and treat them. That won't work, right? You know, James, truly, you don't have to cut them at all. It'll be faster if you do cut them. But you know you're 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 killing the base of the tree is what you're doing. So uh, um, I well, think I can't it, get down low. There's rocks and there's fence and there's I can't get the saw down there. I need I have to cut them. There's about three or four of them at above the fence line. Yeah, but but you can get the diesel down to the ground level, can't you? Yes, sir. Yeah, I I would just cut them as low as you can, and I think you'll be very successful. Oh, okay. Thanks. Uh, the uh, the okra. Have you started your okra in trays yet? No, I, I I usually I'd look at putting okra in the ground sometime toward the latter part of April, the first part of May. I know that's probably a little bit later than you need to. So uh, I'm probably still about three weeks away from starting okra. And and many years I just go ahead and direct seed in the ground, but. Uh, but I want to start the plants early. You know, it takes about four or five weeks to make a good transplant. So I'm still two, three weeks away. That's what I'm away. talking about, Bob. Six weeks. I, I'm going to use the uh, Rootmaker 32-cell uh, tray to get them going, and then I'm going to put them in the Rootmaker gallon. So I need yeah. at least six weeks to do that. Then I'd be starting your seed pretty soon. That's that'll what I was you, talking about. Okay. Right up. Yeah, that'll push you up against the 1st of May, and that ought to be perfect timing, in my opinion. Okay, uh, yeah, uh, and the reason I use the root maker trays is I grow those okras like trees. I, I try to kill all those ta- uh, tap roots with the root maker systems. And, uh, <laughs> well, you know what I'm talking about. I, I do, I do. Sometimes you need a winch to get those things out of the ground at the end of the season if you don't. The <clears throat> the girl over at the root maker in Alabama, she told me about this. And I said, does it really work? And she said, it was harder to pull my sunflowers out at the end of the season than it was the okra. And wow. that sold me right there. Well, this will be the first year you've done that? Well, you've it's used the, root third maker? Year. the third year. Okay. Well, but it's a great idea. you've got to get rid I... of those tap roots, man, or you're in big trouble. <laughs> Great advice, James. Well, uh, get with it. You've got your day's work cut out for you. But, yeah, I think you're real good to get your seed started uh, real soon and get those. And that's that's what you can't do when you're direct planting from seed. When you're when you're starting them out in the root makers, then you can take care of that tap root. It sure will make it easier long run. Uh, I'm, I remember when I had to run the plow through the okra bed, and I still had to hand dig some of the plants that had <laughs> Some, some things make a lasting impression on you. I, I totally agree. Thanks, Bob. 
Hey, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Have a wonderful Sunday, and thanks for uh, keeping us up to date on things. Yes, Chris, sir. let's get a... Thank you. All right, back to gardening. Boy, it's getting to be a busy place over here at Phoenix. Dr. Kirby and I always enjoy coming over here. It's just pretty morning, sun's starting to come out, kitty cats are running around everywhere. It's, uh, you would enjoy coming by and seeing everything. Phoenix, of course, has uh, big deals going on with basically 20% off everything in the nursery, 10% off on the Eco Power equipment and the Traeger pellet grills, but, uh, Shopping for plants, man, they sure have a lot of things, and mulch and compost and all that good material. Let's get back to the phone lines. Uh, it's going to be Scott, Juan, Mike, and Robert. Scott's up first. Good morning, Scott. Howdy, howdy. Couple good morning. Of questions. Uh, I heard talk about a, a, a freeze-resistant um, hibiscus plant. Is there such a thing? What what kind of plant? A a freeze resistant or a, a one that can handle cold better than others? Now there are all sorts of plants. What what kind of plant in general are you wanting to have freeze resistance in? Uh, hibiscus. Oh hibiscus. Um tropical hibiscus are not freeze resistant, but there are what we call mallow hibiscus. And some other different ones. There's one called the Texas Star Hibiscus. There are a number of uh, perennial hibiscus that will freeze down in the winter but come back very reliably in the spring. We had mallow hibiscus froze. Uh, it was five degrees a few years ago, back when we first were opening our nursery, and yet the mallows came right back. If you were wanting something that does not freeze down, then what you have to settle for is what they call an althea. Uh, or a rose of Sharon. It's it is a type of hibiscus, but uh, uh, the the real brightly colored the tropicals. No, none of those are uh, you know consistently freeze resistant. But uh, there are some perennial hibiscus. The colors mean not quite as uh, many colors to choose from. But there are maroon reds, there are whites, there are pinks. There's some two tone ones. But uh, uh, yes, there are some there are some perennial hibiscus out there that are just beautiful. All right. Uh, when should I spray for winter weeds? They got ahead of me this year, and I, I need to be better prepared next year. Um, you know, winter weeds, if we have a cold enough winter that your basic grass, be it Bermuda or whatever, turns brown, you can pretty much um, just spray for them at any point. We use the vinegar and orange oil. As long as your permanent grass is brown, you can spray and kill all your weeds without hurting the grass at all. If we have such a mild winter that your basic grass doesn't brown out, I don't do much spraying. I just uh, do a real regular mowing pro program to try to keep them from, you know, going to seed. But uh, when we have, and, and this year things are pretty much browned out, but you just need to get them sprayed any time uh, before your grass starts to green up. I typically do it in January. And I find if I get, you know, if I spray them in January, I get 95% of them that I don't ever have to spray again. I just go pull the few that come up after that. All right. Last question. Uh, knockout roses. Is there any advantage of trimming them back? And if so, when should we? Knockout roses are among the most vigorous roses that there are out there. And 
you will never hurt a knockout by pruning it. You will um, you will retard the blooming a little bit because knockouts just try to bloom all the time. And uh, probably the single best time to prune them back is early spring, just when they start their spring growth, when they start getting ready to bloom. But uh, knockouts, you can prune them four or five times a year if you wanted to. Is there any benefit of doing that? Just to keep the size down. You're just maintaining a size and a shape. Uh, you're, you're not going to increase vigor or increase flowering. Think about knockouts. In my experience, they take about three times as much water as any other rose have ever grown, and they love fertilizer. But if you can meet their water and fertilizer needs, uh, the only reason to prune them is just to keep them from you know, growing as high as the eaves. And some of them will grow almost that tall. All right. Appreciate you. Hey, my pleasure. I appreciate the call. Thank you, sir. Goodbye. All right. Let's see here. Yeah, we'll take another call or two. Uh, that was uh, Scott. Then next up is Juan. Good morning, Juan. Good morning, Bob. How are you? I'm good, sir. How are you today? Good, good. A little chilly here in uh, Chicago. I just had uh, three questions for you. I guess you are. <laughs> uh, the first one is uh, beneficial nematodes. I hear you speaking about them. Where do you recommend or any site to uh, purchase them? We buy them from a company that is called Hydro, H-Y-D-R-O, Hydro Gardens. Now, okay. um, the um, I'm not sure how much direct shipping they do. They're in Colorado Springs, Colorado is where they are. But you could call them and ask them if you have a dealer in your area because I know they ship all over the country. But uh, okay. when when you deal with them, you're getting the live beneficial nematode. They come on a little blue sponge. And in my opinion, for our grub worms and things that we have here, they have the best selection of uh, different nematode species that they include. We, we get a blend called Guardian Lawn Patrol. Uh, if you call them, you might tell them where you are and tell them what your principal problems are, and they may actually have a different blend that they would suggest to you, and uh, hopefully they can tell you somebody there in your area that will uh, keep them in stock. Okay, thank you. And uh, my second question is, uh, I just purchased a bag of corn gluten meal. When is the best time you recommend to spread them? When do you normally start seeing your spring wheat sprout? Uh I'd say a couple, a couple weeks from now. Okay. You want to get your corn gluten out about a week before the normal time that, the, that your weeds sprout. Because the thing about corn gluten or any other pre-emergent, it does not kill the seeds. That's a big misunderstanding. A lot of people think that corn gluten kills the seed. It doesn't. The way it works, it keeps the seedling from developing a root system. So your little seedling sprouts. And then it can't develop roots, so as long as we have some relatively dry weather, things just dehydrate, shrivel, and die. So you want to get it on early enough that you're, that you're getting the seed just as it sprouts, just before the plant really starts trying to develop roots. But it will be broken down by microbes in the soil, so you can't just rush out there and do it on Christmas. It's not going to protect you all spring. So what you really need to do is kind of watch the weather, and when you figure you're about two weeks away, one week away from the time that the seeds are going to be sprouting, that's when you want to get out and get your corn gluten out. All right, thank you. And uh, my last question, uh, orange oil, which one do you recommend? I like uh, Medina, Medina Agriculture. There's, 
They don't cut it as much. It's a it's a better concentrate, and uh, I've tried a lot of different ones. And Medina Ag is Medina Agriculture is the best one I found. They produce it in, in you know homeowner size. They'll have it in pints and quarts. If you ever had an industrial okay. need for it, they ship much bigger containers as well. Okay, thank you very much, Bob. Hey, it's my pleasure. Thanks for the call from Chicago. All right, we're back to gardening, and we'll talk to Mike and Robert. Might have time for one more after that. Uh, good morning, Mike. Good morning, Bob. Morning, I sir. Tell you what, I've, I've been so busy around here with everything in the world, I can't get to gardening. Oh, that's uh, a, As they say, you've got your priorities all screwed up. Well, that's true, but every time there's work to be done, old Charlie makes himself real scarce, and he doesn't come around. But uh, I called to ask you. I called to ask you about a a plant. I was on my way back from uh, the Nacogdoches uh, Cushing area, and I stopped at a place to, uh, called Rattlesnake uh, Pecan Orchard. Okay. And they they had a a plant out in front, a couple of them, called the Diplodemia. I believe it was. Are you familiar yeah. with that? Absolutely. It's a tropical vine. Um, they're they're real closely related to what are also called mandevillas. They can be grown in pots. They can be grown in hanging baskets. Uh, they're absolutely beautiful. Uh, usually pinks and whites, uh, or pinks and uh, red, and occasional white. But they are tropical. You will have to protect them in the winter, or else just treat them as an annual. But they're they're absolutely gorgeous plants and very easy to grow. But yeah, it's not something you can put in the ground and forget about because we just get too cold in the winter. Uh, will they come back after a freeze? Depends on how hard it freezes. I wouldn't count on it. I'd I'd grow them in a pot that you could move in if it got real cold. Right. These were in pots, and uh, it was like a bush. But you they are. It's a vine. Yeah, it's. You might get a little bit of a woody stem to it, but. Uh, usually, I've I've not seen any varieties that I would really call uh, something to be more bush-like. They're usually growing on a trellis or you know up on a little wire topiary cage frame or something like that. I I can't imagine them being able to grow very large as a bush because they're very very thin stemmed. Huh? Do you carry them over there at uh, Shades of Green? We do when it gets warmer. It's years. We're probably Probably three or four weeks away, I'll know where I'm going to see some growers this week, but I'm guessing that it's probably going to be about the time you start seeing a lot of bougainvilleas show up, that's when you start seeing your diplodinias and your mandevillas. Well, I'm going to try to come get one from you, and that'll be about as much gardening as I can do for right now. I've got septic problems and uh, cars and all sorts of things going on. And well, unfortunately, I think uh, Dave Ramsey's line is, life happens. And you just can't make more hours in the day, much as I wish we could. At least we got an extra hour to work in the evenings now that we've got our evening daylight back. But when you when you can get back to it, uh, I think you'd enjoy Diplodinius very much. You're an absolutely beautiful plant. I'll come check with you here in a few weeks. Sounds uh, like a plan, Mike. Thank you very much. Take care. You do the same. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, goodbye. Robert's up next. Good morning, Robert. Good morning, sir. How are you this fine day? Oh, it's just a beautiful day out here. It's uh, This breeze could die down a little bit. I have to say, 
The one thing about sitting here doing a broadcast, you have to sit still, and sometimes it gets a little chilly, but uh, always always fun being out, out in the weather. Well, the good news is your teeth aren't chattering, so you're coming through loud and clear. Uh, that's a good thing. I appreciate hey, it. Uh, tomato, I pot it up normal, you know, buy the six-packs early, pot everything up, uh, probably four weeks, mostly in a, in a window in the garage, but under a, a light, uh, you know, grow light. Okay. All varieties have pretty have developed pretty heavy white nodes on them, on the stems going up. Okay. Is it what what causes that? Or that's what do I do uh, with it? it's just I... it's just like just kind of like a little a rough spot that's lighter colored. Yeah, it, there, okay. there there is a bump. I mean, it's it's not just discoloration. It is a bump. Okay. That, that little bump. that. That it tells me that you've got pretty good humidity out there because a tomato is a plant that is going to grow roots all the way up the stem. You can plant it pretty much as deeply as you like. In fact, used to have people come in and you know they buy our most overgrown tomatoes, and I'd ask, "How on earth are you going to plant them?" And they'd say, "Oh, we just take a trench and lay them down sideways." But that is just the beginning of where that tomato would grow a root. If it okay, uh, if it were in the, they, I, I typically don't have that issue, so I thought it was kind of strange. It's it probably for whatever reason you probably have more humidity than normal because uh, the higher the humidity, uh, tomatoes will actually they'll be like ficus sometimes they'll almost try to grow aerial roots if the humidity's high enough. So uh, it's not really all that surprising. Okay, very good. Nothing to worry about then. I'll keep plugging Ab- away. Absolutely nothing to worry about. All right, man. Have a great day. and appreciate your help. You do the same, and I thank you, sir. All right. Uh, Chris, do we have any more callers, or do I get to talk about? Okay. (laughs) Two or three things to to talk about uh, uh, here at this point. And I guess one of them that we ought to talk about is proper planting of tomatoes. Uh, Tomatoes are one of those plants that, you know, you, can, you want to get as much fruit as you possibly can out of it. And there's two or three things you can do that will really increase your production. Number one, when you plant your plants, dig the hole a little bit deeper than you need to and put a big handful of rock phosphate in the bottom of the hole. It's been found that rock phosphate put in the hole as kind of a blob on the bottom will actually double the number of pounds of tomatoes you will get from the plant. Now, don't mix it in the soil. Rock phosphate, if it's blended with the soil, it becomes totally chemically inactivated. So you've got to put just, in effect, a mass of it down at the bottom of the hole. Let the tomato grow its roots directly down through it. As uh, Robert was just talking about on the tomatoes, too, tomatoes are the one plant that you can plant more deeply into the soil. You can plant that stem as far down in as you like, and it will actually grow roots up and down the stem and make a little bit stronger plant. So that is uh, one of the things that you want to do as far as planting. Secondly, it has been found that people who stake their tomatoes get about twice as many pounds of fruit than if you just let them sprawl out over the ground. People who grow their their tomatoes in cages get about four times as much in the way of fruit. So I highly recommend the tomato cages. I happen to like the ones from... uh, Texas tomato cage that actually fold up when you don't need them for growing the tomatoes. The bigger, wider cages, 18-inch cages, I usually uh, put two plants per cage, a little bit narrower diameter cage. Uh, I'll just put one plant per cage, but 
Uh, again, you want to get absolutely as much production as you can. A couple of other little tips. If you want to keep spider mites off of them, get in the habit of spraying about every two weeks with a mixture of seaweed and molasses. I usually use two tablespoons of seaweed, one tablespoon of molasses per gallon of water. If you will spray that regularly, you will never see a spider mite on the tomatoes. It also does what we call raising the bricks, B-R-I-X. Bricks is the level of sugar and dissolved minerals, but mainly sugar, in the sap of the plant. And the higher you get the bricks, the sweeter the tomato gets, the more resistant it is to insects and disease. And uh, anyway, it's just uh, that liquid seaweed molasses mix is a great thing to use on tomatoes. So that's sort of tomato 101. But I'm just thinking about all the questions people have asked me about tomatoes in the past week. The other thing that you need to know about tomatoes is that there are two basic groups of tomatoes. We have what we call determinants and what we call indeterminates. Your determinate tomato grows to a certain size, and then it uh, produces all of its fruit at one time, and that's about all you're going to get out of it. An indeterminate tomato is basically a giant vine, and it will just continue to grow and grow and grow. And everybody says, well, why would you want anything but indeterminates? Well, The things you hear about is the rodeo tomato. You hear about a lot of these commercial tomatoes. Your commercial tomato grower wants to pick all the fruit at one time. They want to grow that plant up. They want to load up with fruit. Then they want to let a machine run down the row, pull it out of the ground, and strip the fruit off of it. So when you're buying tomato plants, if you're wanting to have the longest season possible of production, then uh, always look for indeterminate varieties. (laughs) But now that brings us to the one last thing that I will tell you about tomatoes is that there is a big difference in what we call the cherry tomatoes, the little small fruited tomatoes like Sun Gold and Sweet 100 and Juliet. When you compare that to a bigger slicing tomato like Celebrity or Bingo or, you know, Lemon Boy or some of these really big tomatoes, your small fruited tomato does not pay any attention to a nighttime temperatures that your cherry tomato types will produce just almost continually. You probably heard the caller earlier in the show that said our tomatoes from last year were still producing our cherry tomatoes. Uh, they just go on and on and on. I'm told on the Big Island of Hawaii there's a tomato plant along the road that's two miles long going up one of the highways toward the volcano. So if you want tomatoes, fresh tomatoes in the middle of the summer, always plant at least a few cherry tomato varieties. Your large-fruited tomatoes, your slicing tomatoes, they're going to stop producing when the night temperatures get too high. So, And uh, that's uh, also, by the way, one reason some people wait too late on planting your tomatoes. Get your, your big slicers in as early as possible because you're going to have a, a good production in the spring. Then you're going to have this long period with no tomatoes in the summer. And then if you're lucky, you'll get another uh, batch of tomatoes in the fall. So I've had... So many people say, please tell me about tomatoes because that's what everybody wants to grow. You follow those few simple things, and you should be very, very successful in growing your tomatoes. Um, Just a couple of other quick things. Gardening in general, that seaweed molasses mix is going to be good on your peppers. It's going to be good on your eggplant. uh, And it raises the bricks on all these things, which means that you're going to get better quality production. I think probably about every two weeks is about right, but uh, just spray everything out there and you'll find many, many fewer problems. Uh, Other question that I get a lot, uh, 
people tell me that sometimes their cucumbers just don't develop. Uh, sometimes their squash tends to rot before it really fully forms. Usually that is not a problem with disease or anything else. It's simply a matter of incomplete pollination. If that cucumber is supposed to have 300 seeds in it, it needs to have 300 pollen grains land on the female part of the flower. And if you have poor pollination, that cucumber will grow just as long as it was able to produce seeds and then just turns into that little skinny shriveled up rat tail. Same thing with squash. It'll start to grow and it's just turned brown and rot. Just improve the pollination. That problem will go away. 